Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. So up to this point, Paul has been laying sort of a framework, a groundwork, if you would. He's been teaching. He's been encouraging. He's laying out some challenges. But he's doing so because these believers in Corinth uh, are growing. The, the Word of God is beginning to spread. People are coming to Christ, and their lives are being changed. They're being transformed. And, and as they begin to grow, just like us, as we begin to grow towards spiritual maturity, we begin to look at God's Word, and we hear His truth, and it raises questions. Well, what am I supposed to do with that? And so, in essence, now that this church in Corinth has written to Paul, and they've given him specific questions. So in chapter 7, as we, be, we begin the, the, this part of Paul's letter, he says in verse 1, now concerning the matters which you wrote. So Paul is now, after all this framework and encouragement and laying groundwork, now he says, let me deal specifically with some of the things that you wrote to me about. So just understand that as we dive into this, Paul is dealing with some very specific things that they asked him. It's like the parenting principle, right? Your kids come to you. If they ask you a little question, you give them a little answer. If they ask you a big question, you give them a big answer. If they ask you a specific question, you give them a specific answer. Paul is giving them some specific answers to the questions that they wrote. So... I want to look at this passage from three pictures this morning. The first picture that I want us to see is a broken picture. It's hard to get a, a, a nice perspective of a landscape of a picture if the picture's broken, correct? Are you with me? You're still here, right? When you're looking at a picture and it's broken and the pieces aren't all there, you, you really don't get a good picture of it. And, and so the Corinthians here are, are sort of saying, hey, God, what are we supposed to do with this? People are coming to Christ. Their mate's not coming to Christ. What am I supposed to do? Could I be more effective for the cause of Christ if I leave her or if I leave him? And so they're asking these, these questions, but there's this broken picture. And I think the broken picture is their perspective in the culture, just like RDU. Just like our culture in America, the culture had invaded their thinking. We live in an American culture where the culture has invaded the church's thinking. And we don't look at things from God's perspective anymore. We begin to judge God's perspective and His truth based on our worldly perspective. Anybody else been there? And, and so Paul is simply taking them back. We have a broken perspective of marriage in our culture. I don't know if anybody saw the news just last week, uh, a couple in North Carolina celebrating 82 years of marriage. Did anybody see this? 82 years of marriage. They're 103 and 100 years old. They live over outside of Charlotte. 82 years of marriage. Now, contrast that to the New York Times article just about a month ago that, that simply headlined, newlyweds are now going on separate honeymoons. I know, right? The article begins with this, the honeymoon is over. 
Apparently, couples are no longer celebrating their first days of wedded bliss watching sunsets in the Caribbean or sightseeing in Paris. Instead, according to New York Times, they're booking separate solo vacations or trendy unimoons. Are you kidding me? Now, I look at that, when I first read that, I thought, well, that's kind of crazy. But then I thought, you know what? For couples who've disbanded in a culture that has disbanded the truth of God's Word, who are cohabitating, who are living together before marriage, who are having sex outside of marriage, who have destroyed the foundation of God's Word, it makes perfect sense. Doesn't it? Uh, we've been living together, we're traveling together, so for our last big hoorah for our honeymoon, we're just going to go separate directions and have our last big fling. It's just sort of a broken idea of culture. So just like Corinth, our culture, RDU, which is why we've entitled this message series, Letters to RDU, some of the similar things are taking place here. There's this distorted view of what marriage and relationships should be. And really, the book of 1 Corinthians is really all about relationships. The, the Corinthians misunderstood what it was to have relationships with people. It's difficult for some of us just to understand what was taking place in Corinth uh, when we're accustomed to church life, when we're churched, uh, when we're so accustomed to the Christian culture, it's hard to understand what this doctrine was doing to the Roman world. People were coming to Jesus, and, and so here for every single person, regardless of their economic status or anything else, um, they were coming together on an equal basis. Rich and poor could fellowship together. Men and women could fellowship uh, on an equal basis. The rich, the poor, the free, the slave. However, this new equality also brought great misunderstandings because as they began to grow, uh, it, it just was difficult for them to understand. And so relationships are the greatest place we see differences played out, isn't it? Relationships are hard. Somebody say it with me. Relationships are hard. Do you agree? Relationships are difficult and probably no place more difficult than in a marriage relationship. Well, when you think you know somebody until you get married and you begin to live together, and all those differences start to get played out. The one who loves the clutter, the one who is OCD, you know? The spenders, the savers, all those different things begin to get played out, and relationships become incredibly different, difficult. There was an interview several years ago of an older couple married 60-plus years, and, and the interviewer simply asked the question, hey, during all these years of being married, did you ever consider divorce? To which the old man just sort of bristled and replied, divorce? Divorce? Never. Murder, often, but never divorce. <laughs> Anybody resonate with that? Just kind of poke your spouse, it's okay. Hey, relationships are difficult. And so in this text, without denying the difficulty of our sinful fallen nature and the idea that marriage should be this lifelong commitment, Paul also acknowledges the reality of sin that sin has infested the world, and that even the healthiest of marriages have been tainted by the effects of sin. 
So Paul gives some very specific answers and guidelines to the questions that he was asked. We're not going to address every possible situation, so your life may look a little bit different than some of the stuff we talk about. And so I want to put all this in perspective with a simple illustration. How many of you know what a funnel is? All right, for those of you that are a little uncertain of what I'm talking about, I thought it'd probably be best just to show you one. Uh, a funnel, uh, a set of three, a dollar tree, right? Three different sizes. But the principle of funnel is that you have this wide opening that you can put, pour things into that will get narrowed down to something very specific and go into something very specific. Now, why am I saying this? Because the Word of God is much like a funnel. And most of the time in our Christian life, we want to ask God the question, God, how far can I go? Well, what's allowed for me? How far can I go before it's sin? Whether it's, whether it's uh, sex, whether it's other things, what, what am I allowed to do? Am I allowed to go to, to certain types of movies? How many channels am I allowed to have on my cable box? I mean, all these kind of things that we begin to ask. And, and listen, I've studied God's Word, and some of those answers just aren't there in a very specific way. I would call that a precept, a very specific command to God's Word. Do not commit murder is a very specific command. Would you agree? So most of us know, based on the truth of God's Word, there's a specific precept that says, don't commit murder. So most of in this, us, us in this room are not going to go out and, and desire to commit murder. Well, where does that specific precept come from? It comes from broader principles that are laid out in God's Word. We, we begin to understand the specific precepts or commands of God's Word because of broader principles that are laid out in God's Word. And some of you in your marriage or in other relationships, either as a single individual or a married person, you're, you're asking God, God, what, what should I do? What is the specific precept? Give me your will. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. God's will for your life will never contradict his word. You with me? God's will for your life is never going to contradict his word. And in God's word, there's broad principles that are often played out in very specific precepts. But I've also discovered that every question in my life doesn't have a specific precept. I can't go to God's word and find the exact answer in one verse to the question that I have. So as we look at the text, this is what I want you to understand, all right? How far can I go? Well, sometimes we have to look at the broader principles. And, and the question really should be, God how, is, God, how are you trying to protect me, and how are you trying to provide for the greatest possible life that you've intended for me? Those are the questions we should ask. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you have your Bible, I trust you do, I'm going to just ask you to open and we're going to just read this text. And as we do, I want you to look at the specific action words that Paul is giving to us. Things like you should not and you should be reconciled and if you consent and to be made holy and, and to have peace and will save. I want you to see the action that is related to our relationship with God in these seven verses. Are you ready? In verse 10, he begins, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, um, this is something he's addressing that Jesus didn't specifically address. 
The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is uh, an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Let me just say this, that this text is not saying that they're saved. It means they're placed in a position of grace, of connectedness to the church body. Some of you are sitting here and you're here by yourself because your spouse is at home. You are a believing spouse and your spouse is an unbeliever at home. They're brought into the family of grace to be influenced for the, for the cause of Jesus Christ because of your relationship with the body of Christ. So verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, those are the believers, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Underline it, circle it, highlight it, whatever you need to do. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? In other words, lead him to salvation. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So as we read this text, I want you to see the emphasis as followers on the actions, the behavior, the disciplines, the activity, especially in our marriage, that we're to be reconciled to God and we're to be reconciled to one another. I would summarize Paul's statement simply this way, as in all things, as in all things, the spiritual must govern the physical for our bodies are God's temple. See, that's the context that Paul has just been writing. You're, you're not your own. Your body doesn't belong to you. You are God's temple. Therefore, in all things, the spiritual must govern the physical. You see, we are prone to think that a change in circumstances is always the answer to a problem. But the problem is usually within us and not around us. The heart of the problem is typically a problem in the heart. We want to change our circumstances and think that everything's going to be better, but ultimately it comes back to a heart issue. Is my heart right with Christ? If I'm seeking deep intimacy relationship with Jesus Christ first, then my relationship with my spouse will be easier. Not perfect, but as I'm drawn closer to Christ, and as your spouse is drawn closer to Christ, much like a triangle, as each of you are pursuing more intimate relationship with God, guess what happens? You're drawn to one another. The closer we're drawn to God, the closer we're drawn to one another. So there's this broken picture in culture, but then let's look at a bigger picture. And the bigger picture is simply this. These seven verses, these 182 words, are not a complete theology of marriage. You see, in order to get that, we have to look at, at all of God's Word. We, we have to look at the bigger picture. Are you familiar with mosaic art? Anyone? Mosaic art's a, pr a pretty neat technique. They take tiles of different colors and they, they sort of piece it together and form a picture. We have a picture uh, of a, a mosaic art. Here's a picture of Jesus made up of different tiles and, and pieced together. 
And so when we think about a complete theology of marriage, we have to look specifically at all of Scripture and all these different components, and we have to piece it together to get a bigger picture, and then we begin to see the big picture of what what marriage is really all about. But as you review this chapter, you cannot help but be impressed with the seriousness of marriage. Paul's counsel makes it very, very clear that God takes marriage seriously. And we can't disobey it uh, without suffering some kind of painful consequence. So let's just take a snapshot, if we can, of some other pieces of this bigger picture, right? Our own mosaic, if we would. And you're going to have to kind of hang on pretty quick because we're going to run a bunch of verses really fast. So just hang in with me. Genesis chapter 2, the very first book of the Bible, God begins to form marriage. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, as Jesus is speaking, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become what? One flesh. Matthew chapter 19, which is also recorded the same story in Mark chapter 10, it's Jesus speaking. He said, he answered them, you have not read Uh, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In Luke chapter 16, verse 18, as Jesus is speaking, he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, and this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Hold on to that word. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And, was, and what was the one thing God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard your hearts and your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God is serious about his covenants. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, the New Living Translation actually translates this way. He says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, down in verse 39, Paul says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. All these things we begin to take and we begin to form this mosaic of how does God view marriage and, and what is God's perspective in the areas of marriage. Let me just shoot some bullet points at you really fast. We're not going to stop and spend time with these, but one, marriage was designed by God. Marriage was the first institution created by God even before the church. Think about that. How serious does God take marriage and family when it was the first institution he created? 
Marriage is a gift from God. Marriage is something God takes very seriously. Marriage is a commitment, committed partnership between a man and a woman. Marriage is a cooperative effort between equal partners. Marriage requires submission by both partners. You see, submitting to another person is a concept that's often very misunderstood in our culture. It doesn't mean that one becomes a doormat to the other, but in a marriage relationship, both husband and wife are both called to submit to one another and to Christ. See, marriage is a challenge to each partner. Marriage is a relationship in which which both partners are servants. Marriage is a diversity of roles within a partnership of equals. Marriage is helping each partner grow. That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? So you can't just look at 1 Corinthians 7 in these few verses and think, oh, well, that's everything that God says about marriage. No, it's not. Nor is it everything that he says about our relationships with one another. So where do we go from here? Because see, in sharp contrast with our culture, I want to look at a biblical picture. We looked at a broken picture, and there's a bigger picture, but now we have to see a biblical picture, that if we're really going to understand what God's Word is saying, we have to look at this biblical picture. And in sharp contrast with our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other person. That means that love is more fundamentally in action than it is in emotion. Romans 5 eight says, but God demonstrates his own love for us even while we were still sinners. He died for us. You think that felt good? You think he was emotionally drawn to that? No. It was a difficult act, but the act of love said, no, it's more about my actions than it is my emotion. See, marriage is a deeply covenantal relationship because it has both strong vertical and horizontal relationships. God is our covenant keeper. Going all the way back to Adam, God established a covenant with Adam. He established a covenant with Abraham. He established a covenant with Moses. He established a covenant with David. He established a covenant with you and I through the person of Jesus Christ. In Old Testament times, the initiator of the covenant. In other words, the one that initiated the covenant carried the greatest responsibility to fulfill the covenant. Husbands, if you initiated the covenant relationship with your wife, in other words, you were the one that that invited her to be your wife. Maybe you got down on one knee, but you asked her. You were the initiator of the covenant. Listen to me. You carry the greatest responsibility to fulfill that covenant. Because God was the initiator of the covenant that he established with you and me, he carries the greatest responsibility to fulfill his covenant. So what did he do? He sent the son, Jesus Christ, who would be called Emmanuel, meaning what? God with us. God said, Dave, I love you so much, I'm going to establish a covenant relationship with you. I'm going to send my son to die for your sin so that I can be with you wherever you go that I can extend my grace to you and my love to you and my mercy to you and you can be mine and I can grow you to be the man that you've, you've been created to be. God is our covenant keeper. He is the one who says, I am he who will be there with you. See, that's God. He says, I'm, I'm the one who's gonna be there with you. And you go, where is there? 
wherever you go. Wherever you go, I go. Because I'm the one who's going to be there with you. See, I don't know what holds, you know, in the, in the future. I don't know what tomorrow looks like or next week looks like or next year looks like. But God does, and he says, Dave, I'm going to be there with you. Old Testament book of Ezekiel, I love this passage. God is speaking. He says, when I passed by you again and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you. This is an intimate, intimate statement that he's making, and, he, and I covered your nakedness. Get this, I made my vow to you, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord. And you became mine. I will be where you are because I'm establishing a covenant with you. I'm going to be where you are. So if I can, then we look at Ephesians chapter 5, probably one of the most famous that we look at, we read in most weddings. I want to read these verses real quick, and I just want you to see the imagery of Jesus Christ, of God and his church, and the picture that he creates of marriage. You want to know how much God loves marriage? This is his favorite illustration in all of Scripture is the picture of God's relationship to his church and a marriage. Listen, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body, but he nourishes and cherishes it. This verse is the only place in Scripture that I've ever found love actually defined. This verse tells us how you define love. We're going to get to it in 1 Corinthians 13 because that tells us what love looks like when it's lived out in human relationship. This verse defines love for us. Verse 30, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. You see, we are made by God and for God. That's what Paul is driving home here in 1 Corinthians. We say something about Christ in the church by how we act. We say something about Christ in his church by how we live out a covenant relationship in marriage with our spouse. We say something about Christ in his church by how we keep our promises. And the covenant of marriage is not merely an act of will. It is itself grounded in the new covenant and the gospel. It is grounded in the person, nature, and character of Jesus Christ himself. So if I can, I want to go back to my illustration. We said there are very specific precepts. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't commit murder. Those are very specific precepts because there are broad principles, right? Don't commit murder because there's broad principles that, that we refer to as the sanctity of life. That God is the giver, the creator, the sustainer of all life. So therefore, it's played out in a very specific precept. So let me ask you a question. Where does that principle come from? You see, 
there are very specific precepts in God's Word that are based on broader principles that are taught in Scripture. Now hang on to this. Those broad principles are based on the person, nature, and character of God. You see, when God says don't commit murder, it's because there's broad principles called the sanctity of life. And, and we look at passages and, and Psalms and all through Scripture, even back to Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning, God, the word is Elohim, it literally means creator. In the beginning, God, the creator, created the heavens and the earth. He created man. He gave life. He is the giver, the sustainer of life. The person, nature, and character of God is life. What did Jesus say? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. He is the giver of eternal life. He's the giver of physical life. Therefore, there's a broad, uh, broad principles of the sanctity of life, but there's very specific precepts. Don't murder. Why? Because I, God, am the giver and the sustainer of all life. Every precept, every principle in all of Scripture is based on the person, nature, and character of Jesus Christ. Gosh, how does that affect my life? How does that affect my walk with, with Jesus Christ? How does it affect my relationship with, with everybody that I encounter, and especially and in including my wife? Well, if we look at the, the word divorce or separate that Paul uses... The word is literally defined to forsake or to put away. See, to divorce your mate is to, to separate, to, to put away, to forsake them. Well, how does that match up with the nature and character of God? In the writer of Hebrews chapter 13, he speaks and he actually quotes the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy when he says, I, speaking God, I will never leave you or forsake you. How does God feel about marriage? How does he feel about relationships? If you forsake, if you divorce, if you separate, if you put away, you are behaving in a way that's contrary to the nature and character of God. That's why Malachi, God says, I, I hate divorce. Why? Because it's contrary to my nature. I am a faithful God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So when we forsake one another, whether it's a marriage relationship or any relationship, and we don't fulfill our covenant promises, God says that breaks my heart. Why? Because it's contrary to my nature. It's contrary to who I am. But get this. But God still looks at us and he says, I still love you. How many of you as parents have been disappointed in the behavior of your child? And I don't know to what extent they've disappointed you. Maybe you took them out of the will or something like that. But listen, we, we can't separate them from being our child. My three darling little sinners are, are wonderful and I love them dearly, and, and they've done things that have been disappointing and discouraging, but they're still my children, and I still love them. Listen, I don't know your life story. I know many, and God has done some incredible work of restoration in marriages and in homes and in people's lives. But some of us are sitting here, and we've got baggage, and we've got hurt, and, and you're looking at God's word going, God, God, I've blown it, and I don't know how in the world you can love me. Listen, please hear me very clearly. God loves you. He loves you. 
He loves you more than you could ever, ever imagine. And as we dive into this, it's so incredible because we are testifying about, by our perseverance and covenant keeping something about Christ. We're demonstrating something about the church and covenant with each other. People are looking at us and they're getting a picture of God by how we live in relationship with one another. There's a fantastic article. It actually came out in Christianity Today back in 1983, and I know some of you were not even born then. I get that. But this was a phenomenal article, and I may take it and, and kind of redraft it and post it uh, to our uh, Facebook group page or something because it really is a phenomenal article. It was written by a guy named Lewis Smeeds, and Lewis was a pastor uh, he was a professor of theology out at Fuller Seminary in California, and it's just a great article on, on making promises. The, the, it was called Controlling the Unpredictable, the Power of Promising. And listen to what Lewis said. I love this. He says, when I married my wife, I had hardly a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. Amen? How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. Isn't that great? Can you relate with Lewis? We're not the same people we were a year ago, or five years ago, or 10 years ago, or 20 years, or 30 years ago. What I've seen God do in, the, in, in my wife's life and build in just incredible biblical conviction was, was, I never even imagined that when I first met her. 30 years ago, she thought I was awesome, you know? In 30 years, I've proved that wrong, you know? Why? Because we change, we become different people, and, and yet we persevere together. We, we go through the process, and the thread that kept all five of those men together is a promise. A promise, a covenant relationship that said, I will be there for you. Wherever there is, I will be there for you. See, that's what God did with us. He says, I, I made an appointment with you in the future. I want to be your husband, and, and standing at the altar, we made a vow with one another. And in that moment, and, and I almost showed a picture of this, but it was just scary when I looked at it, uh, our, our wedding picture. But when you're standing at the altar, you're, you're making a commitment that says, I am the one who will be there with you. 30 years ago, we stood at an altar and we, we made a vow. I do, I do, I will. And we're saying that I am the one who will be there with you, wherever there is. And at that point, we had no idea that North Carolina existed. But today, we're here saying, I'm the one who is here with you, and I'm the one who will be there with you, wherever there takes us. You see, salvation is that exact same picture. Hang on to this. Are you ready? When we come to the place we give our heart and life to Jesus Christ... Sometimes we simply want to go, okay, God, here's all the bad stuff I've done in my past, and please forgive me of that. And God's saying, okay, that's, that's step one of salvation is confession of our past and our sin. That's who we are. 
But see, salvation is giving our future to Christ. In covenant relationship, he says, I am the one who established a covenant with you. I initiated the covenant. I carry the greatest responsibility to fulfill it. Therefore, I am the one who will be there with you. So when I gave my life to Christ, God said, great, I understand that you're a sinner and I died for that sin and I forgive you, but Dave, I am the one who will be there with you. And, and salvation is not just giving God our past, it's giving him our future. It's saying, I will walk with you, God, and I will follow you, and wherever we go, I know that you will be there with me. That's a covenant. And through the ups and the downs and the highs, the lows and the good and the bad, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, I am the one who will be there with you. This is the ground of covenant. The idea of a promise in that nurtured, fertile soil is where our marriages can flourish. They can be nurtured. They can be reflourished in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, once writing to a young married couple, he said, it's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. I've said over and over and over, I know there's times that, that my wife doesn't like me. Wives, are, are you with me? Go, go ahead and poke the guy next to you, it's okay. There are times we don't like each other. There's times that our emotions aren't always mushy-gushy. It's not always flowers and candy and dates and, and all those starry-eyed feelings we had once upon a time. Life is hard and it's full of stuff. And this has been a hard passage just to kind of work through because it brings out the worst in me. Because I know what God intends for my wife. And I know that I fail to be the man that God created me to be for her. Men, listen to me. You and I carry the greatest responsibility to fulfill the covenant. You and I as men have the greatest influence in this culture of anybody. And ladies, please understand, I'm not trying to demean or lessen you in any way, but what this world needs is dangerous, good men for the cause of Jesus Christ. Because when we start getting it right, guess what? Our homes begin to flourish. And as our homes begin to flourish, guess what? Our community begins to flourish. Our schools begin to flourish. Our church begins to flourish. Why? Because men are becoming men that God created them to be. And as covenant initiators, we carry the greatest responsibility to fulfill the covenant. You're not getting along. Things aren't perfect. Great. You know what? Fulfill your covenant. Run hard after Jesus. Pursue Jesus. But listen to me. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. God never called you to live this life alone or to walk in fellowship with God alone. He brought us together in biblical community to run the race and live a life that's honoring to Christ. As we wrap it up, I clearly understand that we all come to this place with unique aspects in our lives. But there's a cool picture that I want you to see because your life is part of the story that God is creating 
in this world. Your life is a testimony of God's love and His goodness. Your story is part of the story of Southbridge. Your story is part of how RDU begins to see the person of Jesus Christ. So can I take you back to that mosaic of Jesus for just a moment? One of the things I love about this picture is simply this. When you zoom in on that picture, you begin to see that each of those tiles are actually people. See, you are part of God's story. Your life, your brokenness, your sin is part of God's story. It's not your story, it's God's story in you. God loves you, he cares for you, he's building a hope uh, in you. He's reconciling you to himself so that you can be reconciled to one another. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul reminds us that we are given the ministry of reconciliation. And see, when we begin to live out our stories in absolute surrender and covenant with God and with one another, guess what we do? We begin to paint a picture of Jesus to a lost and dying world. Your workplace begins to see Jesus. Your neighborhood begins to see Jesus. Our community begins to see Jesus. All of RDU begins to see Jesus. Why? Because we're living in covenant relationship with God and with one another. And we're painting an accurate picture of who Jesus is. So I don't know where you are this morning, but I promise you that there's some of you that are hurting now. Some of us that are hurting. There's deep hurt. There's unreconciled relationships in our past. There may be divorce. You may be in a difficult situation right now. Maybe you're uncertain. You're not even sure what to do or, or how to love someone as God commands you to. I want you to hear this one thing if you don't hear anything else of this. I want you to be assured of this simple truth. God loves you right where you are, right in this moment of hurt. God loves you and he cares for you. And as a church family, we want to be here with you to begin to walk through. I'm not going to turn to the scripture and find one verse that's going to answer all of your life scenarios. But guess what? All of God's word creates these principles. We're going to point you back to the person, nature, and character of Jesus. We're going to help you walk through that journey. You might be, need to get connected in a small group and just find people that are going to love you and care for you. You might need to get matched up with one of our marriage mentoring couples who've been there. And we'll just kind of walk through a journey with you. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you're a guy and you just need to get connected with other men. Maybe you're a lady. You need to get connected with another lady or two just to to love you and nurture you and to carry you through a difficult scenario. Let me close with this quote. I love this from Dr. R.C. Sproul. He said, I don't always feel his presence, but God's promises do not depend on my feelings. They rest completely upon his integrity.